space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. Hello and welcome to Molding Masculinity. Once again this week, we are embarking on a five-hour mission to talk about all of the Starfleet captains. Uh, so last week we went through Captain Kirk, then Captain Picard, then Commander, and then Captain Benjamin Sisko. And then now this week, we're going to talk about Captain Janeway, Captain Archer, and Captain Christopher Pike. So diving straight into Starfleet's, well, not Starfleet's first uh, female captain, but Starfleet on television's first female captain. I'm, I'm saying that very presumptively. I'm just assuming there was, it, it was Starfleet, that Starfleet was better than us today. I would hope that they had a female captain before the 24th century. But the first one we got to see, Captain Janeway, who was fantastic, also though made a lot of bad decisions like Tuvix. But um was a cool captain and somebody who very much shaped my masculinity and my conceptions of masculinity as a kid um and i think represented something very similar and uh, similar in star trek to the way that captain picard kind of challenged some typical concepts of masculinity i think um captain janeway uh challenged some of that in in the ways that like she displayed things that kind of are seen as traditionally masculine but there's no reason for that to be traditionally masculine that can very much be a part of her own femininity uh which this isn't a top podcast where we talk a lot about femininity though because we're not qualified to talk about that <laughs> but um sure yeah so I think basically what I'm trying to say there is I may talk about some things that are a part of Captain Janeway's identity that I see reflected in my own masculinity, but there's no reason that that can't also be reflected in her own femininity. I don't think those are mutually exclusive. There are things that can be feminine and masculine at the same time, and I think those things are most things. Yeah. So I also am a big fan of Captain Janeway. I think she is an interesting... Uh, I don't know if she was intentionally written like this, but I certainly see her as a kind of return to the Picard era captain, uh, or at least sort of like with a twist, obviously. Um, certainly she holds a similar thing of having a very strict moral code that she, uh, that she feels is kind of like a high ideal and, 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 uh, coming into conflict, particularly Voyager, um, which um, for those who are maybe not Star Trek fans, there's a, most of the, the Star Treks are about like going out and just kind of exploring un, un, unexplored worlds. Specifically, we, uh, we mentioned in the previous episode, Deep Space Nine was kind of like more like about being in a single location and dealing with the political realities there. Uh, Voyager continues the trend on Star Trek exploring aspects different than the typical exploration arcs of the first few series with a accident that catapults a single starship across the galaxy 
um, so that they are immensely far from home. Like their projected arrival time at home is that they will all be, if they went as fast as possible, would be when they were all old. Yeah, it was 80 years, if I remember right. It was going to be yeah, 80 yeah. So years they were, back. I, I think like the idea is like with their current med- medical technology, they wouldn't be dead, but they would certainly be approaching the end of life. Um, and yeah, so there was this sense of like, we're going to make the journey home. We're going to try to do it and we're going to try to hold to our ideals and cling to our, you know, uh, as a sort of like, proxy for clinging to one's own humanity and not just succumb to um, um, more base sort of like, let's steal from these people, take from these people, and made all the harder by the fact that the ship was uh, carrying a lot of uh, war uh, prisoners that were like uh, political dissidents uh, from the Maquis. When, and when so there, I... there's a, there's a sub-conflict there where the ship gets into a state where uh, they need the Maquis to uh, run the ship properly, uh, but um, they are loath to um, give them political power initially, uh, any kind of real power, for fear that they would um, misuse the the Starfleet power of the Voyager ship. Yeah. And, and, well, and I started to correct you, but actually, I guess you are generally correct um yeah because they are prisoners it's they both get both ship it, it's the maquis are on their own ship and both ships oh, get that's transported. Right, that's right. um but the maquis ship is destroyed in uh a resulting conflict that happens that they do both end up on the same side of and then yeah the the maquis crew are then a, sort of quickly integrated into the crew but it's definitely the first part of tension to the first couple of episodes and continuing all the way throughout the series is a part of the tension uh, the right. captain of the maki ship uh it becomes janeway's uh first officer um so yeah um, yeah so i say all that initially just to give background to uh the the discussion here because it's, it's sort of an important point to know that like it's a little bit different in that like, you know, when Janeway is trying to hold to her ideals, it's in the face of being lost, like literally physically lost and trying to make their way back home in a place where should they break with their ideals, honestly, there's no one to come in and slap them on the wrist. Mm -hmm. There is no clear consequence other than the moral consequence of feeling as though you violated and did something wrong um there's nobody so there's a it's a it's got a different texture to it yeah there's nobody to give harry kim a promotion <laughs> uh to explain for again those who are like harry kim is an ensign it's like the lowest officer rank and uh, does he ever get a promotion i can't remember nope. <laughs> he, he remains an ensign the entire time despite incredible uh heroics that certainly deserve one yeah, I, th- I think there's like a decision early on that they're like, all right, well, no, we're not going to like get nobody's getting promoted at all. Like not the cap. I'm not going to become admiral now. We're, we're not going to do any promotions. And Harry Kim is like at the bottom of the board as an ensign on the bridge crew. And it's just like, well, damn. OK, but um, sucks to be Harry Kim. But um, yeah, yeah, no, I think there's a lot of really interesting um, uh, kind of conflicts that go on in in Voyager. A lot of things that I found very interesting as a kid, because Voyager is a smaller ship, uh, it's not 
a ship full of families like the next generation was and so a lot of its interactions are dealing with again kind of back to the original series is it's dealing with new species that it's encountering and there's uh, which is going to be a similar trend along with the next starfleet captain but there is a trend of a lot more combat a lot more uh militaristic issues a lot of them being a single ship having to deal with being in hostile space because there's a lot of alien species they come across who are like really not cool with them being there and then they of course also then stumble across the borg and have to deal with the borg but yeah. it's it would now and i think some of the best character development with the series happens really with the borg um, and the Borg being, I don't want to get too much into describing everything about Star Trek, but giving a quick describer of the Borg, yeah. of it being kind of like uh, a, a cybernetic hive where you lose your individuality and you become a part of a hive mind and you, um, you know, have half of your body replaced with kind of machines and stuff. And we have a member of that species, which isn't really a species because they force you to become a part of them. You become uh, assimilated, assimilated by the Borg. But we get seven. Sure, of... not a terminology that was chosen by accident. <laughs> yes, um, and we get seven of nine on the on Voyager, who is a former human who was assimilated by the Borg and is then rescued by Janeway, and she was assimilated in an extremely young age as a child. And we get this process where, in a lot of ways, Janeway is acting as an adult parent, or like, and I, when I like, an a parent for an adult, like you know, as you know, your parents when you're an adult for Seven of Nine, as Seven of Nine is coping with trauma and also coping with re-entry into a regular society and trying to learn what her ethics are, what her moralities are, how she's going to deal with the universe around her, and I think that's immensely like it's a lot of really cool stuff we're also we also deal with like the doctor who is a hologram and is also kind of going through that same experience as a hologram but uh i i think that's really fascinating it gives another like a parenthood example for me um as a kid when i was growing up but it was kind of very much like uh, i want to be the kind of parent like captain janeway is and captain cisco is and with also like a lot of what i saw out of captain picard even though captain picard never actually operates as a parent i i, I thought that was uh something very valuable to me and then i also very much um again like janeway is very militant and very military uh themed which spoke to me a lot as a kid and i think is the part that as an adult kind of falls apart with me um, I think she was a good commander for keeping her crew safe, but I think she also, while we see Picard stick to his guns about his moralities and his ethics, I feel like we see Janeway more shape her ethics more around her situations. In some ways, the where she has to. And I mean, there's a part of, I think, a value in that of learning the necessity of that at times, but I also think there's a uh, contradictory, like there's the lesson to be learned where this is sometimes not a, uh, it's, it's not a lesson and be more like Janeway. Sometimes it's a, le a cautionary tale, if you will. Yeah. And I think this tension of Janeway struggling with her moral code in the face of, you know, essentially zero to minimal consequences for breaking it, because certainly as a Starfleet captain, you know, coming back from some, 
unexpected horrible accident where they're trapped you know 80 light years from home or perhaps even more i can't remember because they travel it it doesn't matter really really far (laughs) um there's certainly a thing that she could easily go back and be like a she could leave out a bunch of shit they'd never know and b uh they'd probably excuse away a great deal of behavior given the circumstances. So like, uh, and she sticks sometimes very rigidly to the prime directive in particular, uh, a, a moral code saying that like, um, they can't, that Starfleet shouldn't like uh, intervene in cult in cultures that haven't reached certain levels of technology. Um, you know, a, uh, you know, rule that that's meant to stop, um, sort of uh, uh, sort of technological colonialism of Starfleet into cultures that haven't yet reached the same sort of level so they can, uh, yeah. So, and she sticks to, and it has a lot of sub rules in it. It's, and I don't want to get into the whole prime directive thing, but like uh, she's, she's very adamant about that in, in times where it's literally costing her crew and herself material things in the moment like like sometimes like it's an open question whether or not they're going to have enough energy to fuel their applicators enough for people to have like the meals that they need to eat which is like a really interesting thing because star trek is to 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 date with until this series been one a series that has been marked by um a complete lack of scarcity they literally just have like replicators that can generate anything made of matter uh and so like the idea of scarcity is like only sort of pseudo explored in arcs with um you know the ferengi and stuff like that who still operate on like a money cap capitalist type system so like here they're presented with real scarcity like a real legitimate concern of we can't get resupplied we may have to fend for ourselves we may have to ration to do all this stuff and um you know her decision to stick to some of these moral codes and these scenarios is um not without cost it's not just sort of like oh you know whatever we just won't mess with this culture we'll get our supplies it's like like i won't make this trade for important supplies that we need because giving them this technology would be wrong which is a, a very different sort of moral texture than any other thing had had. And it's a really interesting uh, character arc for sure. Yeah, I, I think it is. And I think it leads, you know, a lot to unpack about, you know, the, the, some of the, like the greater questions about Star Trek, which is like the, the ethical um, validity of the prime directive and, and how they, and, and I think it does do a good job of kind of exploring those questions and asking and answering some of those questions. Um to bring it i want to bring it a little bit back to the sort of center question that we have of like what does captain janeway say about masculinity in particular i think she says a lot by virtue of being not in that category um is she is uh certainly star trek's first on-screen female captain that in and of itself in how she approaches that and 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 the way that she does and how that relates to previous captains says a lot about what we think of as masculine for example like um the stoicism 
or the or the rigid adherence. I wouldn't call her particularly stoic, really, but like the rigid adherence to morality is portrayed as the sort of masculine trait in the next generation with Picard, and here it is reflected in someone who is a woman. So it's like it it puts she 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 shows a lot of features of previous captains, and in fact, her crew reflects a lot of stuff from the previous captains whether it's um her some of her behaviors like her moral standings and and other behaviors reflecting of picard the fact that she is constantly in uh tension with um you know sort of the heavy um ration you know rationality and logic of her vulcan uh science officer uh which is reflective of the original series. Um, there's uh, um, a sense of like uh, the relationship, the mentorship between her and Seven of Nine being reflective of Picard and Data. Like there's parallels. And a lot of these are meant to show that like, um, I, th I think there's something to be said, for example, that when we see Picard and Data, it's seen as kind of a mentor-mentee relationship. But when we see Seven of Nine and Janeway, it seems like a mother-child relationship, which is played into a little bit by the fact that Seven of Nine was made non-human as a child. And so there's a little bit of validity to that, but like, there's still something to be like, when women mentor people, it's kind of seen as motherly. Whereas if men mentor people, it's a mentor. That, that to me says like, you know, maybe maybe we should see them both in, in slightly different lights. I don't think either one's necessarily correct. For example, I think it's an interesting question to ask, what does the Data-Picard relationship look like if you think of it as father and son? Or what does the Seven of Nine Janeway relationship look like if you imagine it as mentor to mentee as opposed to mother to child? So like, I think Janeway, almost just by virtue of being a woman in a space that has up until this point been exclusively dominated by men says a lot about uh, in the in in very much that star trek way of saying a lot of stuff without ever just like looking at the camera and saying it just by being in that position she calls into question a lot of things that you may have initially thought of as masculine uh inherently and saying like, well, I don't know, Janeway's kind of like this too, and I respect it in her too. Does that mean it's, and then having that question, like, does that mean it's not masculine? Or does it mean that like that trait doesn't belong in a masculine bucket? Or like, what, what does that mean? To me, I think it shines a light on the fact that a lot of the stuff that we think of as very gendered is just not. Uh, we are, and that's part of the, the message central to this podcast a little bit is that like, um, we're molding masculinity, right? Like we're trying to like change in ourselves and discuss through ourselves, like what does it mean to be masculine? And I think a lot of the conclusion there is often um, it, it means something, but not as much as we think it does. <laughs> that a lot of the things that we associate with that part of our identity are ones that really don't apply to men specifically in any kind of meaningful way. And it would be worse if they did. Like it would be worse for captainship <laughs> if Janeway couldn't be confidently moral 
in the face of great adversity or couldn't be um, willing to spend a lot of time to give an important uh, uh, crewmate who's struggling with who they are and how they belong and how they fit into society uh, being, you know, having machine uh, being either completely machine in Dea's case or, you know, part machine in Seven of Nine's case, like spending all that time, like that, that kind of mentorship isn't a masculine thing. It would be worse if it was, because then that thing couldn't happen. And clearly both of those characters are made better by that experience. So like, to me, Janeway says a lot about masculinity purely by putting a light on the fact that a lot of the things that you think of as masculine aren't because you see them in Janeway and they're still cool. I agree. And, 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 and kind of along that same thread, there's one other thing that I, for me, was very important that, that made Voyager very important to my development. And that is, and I'm going to take a bit of a sidestep to explain kind of where I'm going into this. Um, because I used to not really believe that um, representation of people and things in media affected society. I believed that society affected art, not the other way around necessarily. And when I was living in China, when I was when I was studying in China, um, I, I had a situation. It was actually it was a long string of situations that kind of culminated um, where a friend of mine was having a lot of experiences of people in China being racist against her for being black. And there was a moment where we confronted somebody about why they were having these reactions to her. And we're, um, this person was asked, You've, have you ever met a black person? And they said, no. And we're like, why do you like, we had asked them like, so they were like following her around a convenience store and we were like, why are you following her? And they were like, well, she's black. She's going to steal something. And we're like, well, have you ever even met a black person? And they were like, no. Like, why would you think that then? And they were like, well, because that's what you see. Like, that's, that's what they show in movies. All the black people I've ever seen in movies are always criminals. And then that was something that we started like kind of bringing up in some conversations and talking about with some other friends of mine in China. Because one of the really things about race in China is that like people there's not like a there's not a fear of talking about it like people aren't afraid to talk about it afraid that they'll appear racist because there's not the same it's not the same situation as it is here and so people are very upfront and very putting a right on the table of why they feel and why they say certain things and that caused me to really reprocess how I think media affects society and to process how media has affected me personally and i think captain janeway is a situation where i was very positively affected now i also think that there are a lot of women in my real life as a kid growing up that also affected this but there's a situation with janeway where it is a woman put in a place of power often a military place of power in a military place of power where she is actively on like frontline situations and that's never a problem never something that somebody is like well i'm sorry i can't take orders from you because i find you attractive it's it's, it's she's never a distraction to the may have an, i may have an inherent biological instinct to to protect you that may cause me to yeah, violate that, order <laughs> yeah like none of we don't get any of that bullshit we get a 
just she's very much treated as an equal as any other captain would be. Um, and I think that was something very valuable to me moving forward that has caused it to be easier for me to not indulge into certain avenues of of, of the patriarchy, to not, you know, to, to, to have no problem with uh, having women as bosses and to not have, like, an authority issue with not wanting to, like, take orders from a woman, uh, which, you know, like, is a problem among a lot of men. Um, and also to not have hang-ups about the ideas of women being in certain spaces um, and to be very aggressively have some strong opinions about those hang-ups uh, and about getting rid of those hang-ups. And I think that definitely was something core to it. I mean, like, and yes, it's a fictional universe, um, but as a kid, and f to be blunt, a problem I had, a toxicity I had in young adult, like in young, in, in, as a teenager, as like a 13, 14-year-old, is I was really bad at separating uh Star Trek from reality. Uh, I want to say fiction from reality, but to be very on the point, it was Star Trek from reality. And, um, you know, Starfleet was very real to me. And the idea that Captain Janeway had just as much authority and respect as Captain Picard was very real to me. And the idea that any woman I met in a position of authority or in the workplace, uh, in a position of, uh, of, 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 you know, to be respected was no in no way different than a man in that same position. And I think yeah. that was, I think that's where I think representation in media very much matters because it does affect people in that kind of way. Yeah, for sure. Oh, I think that a lot of, um, a lot of credit goes to Kate Mulgrew, uh, the actress that plays Captain Janeway for, frankly like in a series that is uh in my opinion plagued with a little bit of poor writing uh, uh voyager is not well renowned for being the most well-written star trek uh series um not that it's bad i enjoy it quite a lot um but um i don't think i think i enjoy it in spite of the writing rather than because of the writing um and certainly uh kate mulgrew knocked it out of the park in her performance of a character that was sometimes uh written a little ham-fisted uh even uh, uh i'm thinking particularly of like the episodes in which q who is this like sort of like borderline deity uh character who is a little bit weirdly obsessed with humans in particular um and her like strange like romance arc with him which was always like super weird um but like honestly she makes me believe it even though i probably shouldn't because she's just good she's a good actress and i like her a lot agreed 100 percent. um and that was definitely i think that was i i do think that um kate mulgrew being in voyager made voyager what it was and and i've uh some interviews i've seen have kind of given the same impression from a lot of the cast there was uh there was another person who was actually initially cast to be captain janeway she came in and did the first day of shooting and actually quit midway through the first day of shooting kate mulgrew was brought in as kind of an, like a like a backup of a i don't think they were even intending to stick with kate mulgrew it was kind of a like well okay you were our runner-up come in here 
And uh, other people in the cast said that when she stepped on the bridge, it was such a moment that just sucked all of them into the scene because she just commanded such a charisma of authority where they were just like, oh, no, this is the captain. Like, nobody's arguing this. This is the captain. This is Captain Janeway. Like, nobody is taking the ship from her now. And uh, that was something that I love that she brought to that series in just such a fantastic way. Like, I, you know, I, and I am a very, um, and I wasn't as a kid when I was watching the show, I wasn't particularly anti-authoritarian or anarchistic. Um, even today as, uh, somebody who, um, uh, dabbles in being an anarchist and feels very kind of unauthoritarian, like anti-authoritarian and a fundamental problem I have with Star Trek is kind of these authoritarian hierarchical systems. Boy, does all that just want to melt away when I watch Voyager and I'm just like, Okay, she's allowed to be my leader, though. <laughs> Death to leaders, except Captain Janeway. Okay, if she tells me to do something, look, guys, I, the captain gave me orders. I can't. To be fair, I think you could argue uh, under an anarchist model that uh, Starfleet's uh, hierarchy is justified, uh, at least when it comes to the actual ship itself, uh, if not the larger military structure. But... And and I think there's I, I want to really a different get different debate entirely, obviously. Yeah. When <laughs> when we get to Captain Pike, I really want to dive into some more of that because I think Captain Pike gives a more modern a more modern view at what leadership should be. And I think he does a better job. So one of the things is that Captain Janeway one of the things here is that Captain Janeway does have a bit of a um at times fraught relationship with her crew. She will make decisions and lots of her crew on uh, lots of her bridge crew and immediate officers are like, nah, I don't think that's a good idea. Let's not do that. And she's like, yeah, well, I'm the captain, so we're going to do it. And she makes that work because she's Kate Mulgrew and Captain Janeway. Um, but there's some problem. Like, that's not a great leadership thing. Not great from a anarchist perspective for certain. Um, that I think we do see banner later on with other captains. Um, but at the same time, like, that's... Nobody, like, no character should be perfect, and I do think that's something she has to kind of cope with, because at the end of Voyager, it's her crew that very much saves Voyager, um, and, and, and in some ways kind of working and not in full agreement with her, and she kind of has to accept some more of a spreading of authority amongst her crew, which I think is good. Uh, I think that's kind of part of the plot line, is that, you know, it, I mean, that's definitely, like, as a captain of a ship, you are launched onto the other side of the galaxy where you no longer have connection with the Admiralty or anybody else, you are suddenly the, you know, and it's it's the, it, it was a concept that kind of, um, so Star Trek is largely based on uh European particularly British naval fiction literature from kind of the turn of the 19th 20th century uh that was kind of set in the 18th century and one of those ideas from like 18th century sailing in, in the British Navy is this idea that once a captain gets out to sea he is god like his authority is god because there's nobody that he really has to answer to until he gets back into range of the Admiralty. And this is the real part of Starfleet, I think, or Star Trek, where you really kind of get that reality. And the fact that she doesn't go full authoritarian, um, full fascist regime says something for Janeway and I think says something for what tri Star Trek tries to create as its uh, positive 
uh, utopian future. For sure. But now talking about fascists, should we move on to Captain Archer? <laughs> sure, yeah. <clears throat> For Captain Archer, uh, I have a lot less personal experience. I watched some of it growing up, but I kind of like, I wasn't as big of a fan personally, uh, which I know a lot of people like have um, mixed feelings about this series. Um, but so I, I guess what I'm saying is like my personal experience dries up a little bit here, uh, but it, I still think from what I remember, it's very interesting uh, character to talk about. It very much is. It's a very much a return to a hyper-masculine captain, um, kind of an archer archetype. He's so to like to give our little bit of Star Trek background to each one. Star Trek Inter Enterprise is a prequel TV series that goes back to the very first Enterprise. That is, um, I want to say it's fifty years before Captain Kirk's Enterprise, uh, and so it's the first warp. Uh, five capable starship and so it is kind of like voyager it is a starship that is mostly out on its own um but it does have connection with starfleet and it's kind of exploring all of the traditional uh it, to start with it's exploring all the traditional start and like you know we're meeting the klingons for the first time and stuff like that then it delves into some more specific uh stuff later on in the show but one yeah one of the big elements is that captain archer is a very rogue pirate or not pirate rogue starfleet captain in much the same kind of way that captain kirk was so in captain kirk you get a lot of uh the admiralty gave you orders to do this and captain kirk says ha ha, ha the fuck if i will i'm going to go do what i think is right archer is that but like kind of times 10 um, he is kind of the worst person to give the keys to the first Warp 5 capable ship to because nobody can get him to do what he needs to do. He does create Starfleet, or not not create Starfleet, he creates the Federation of Planets um, through the course of this, and he has to deal with a lot of diplomacy and things of that nature. He's terribly kind of bad at diplomacy, um, but... Getting to the more masculine archetype elements, there are some positive things I want to talk about with Archer. Uh, he is much more about trying to create a relationship with his crew. He takes a lot more input from his crew. It is a very much smaller ship, and I feel like there's less of a authoritarian system, actually, in his ship. Uh, they seem to be a little bit more tight-knit. But you also get and, and he's very defensive of his crew. Like, there's a there's a scene where T'Pol, his first officer, who is uh, uh, Vulcan, because every first officer outside of the next generation has to have a Vulcan, has to be Vulcan. Um, T'Pol is... Um, be Voyager, too, but... Oh, well, yeah, 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 because Tuvok wasn't the first officer, he was the science officer. But, yeah. So, um, T'Pol is having a mind meld with another Vulcan, and, uh, well, no, she isn't. Um, another Vulcan forces a mind meld upon her without her consent. And there's like a whole conversation about consent that I think is very valuable to have, especially in the early 2000s. There's a lot of wonderful little nuggets in Enterprise, but there's also a lot of moments where he is just 
aggressively masculine. He is asked to do things and he refuses to do them because he finds them to be embarrassing for himself. He needs everybody to see him constantly as the authority and as the strong, capable man. And every time that he's not necessarily seen as that, it really hurts his ego. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of the like a lot of what I have to say about Archer is that he is not a particularly great leader. He repeatedly has terrible ideas that his crew like corrects him on and then everybody ends up doing like they end up doing what the crew said or they end up doing his idea and it fails completely that it's something that I think the show does a bad job of addressing is just that he's not a good captain but kind of losing the thread there uh this isn't about who is a good captain who is a bad captain but as far as promoting positive masculinity I think he was very much a step back because I think the showrunners were kind of just trying to duplicate captain kirk in a lot of ways yeah they definitely were and that was kind of be, going to be my big comment was this was the first uh star trek for me that uh became one an, an unfortunately longer line of examples of star trek that were more about capitalizing on the popularity of star trek as a product and focused a lot less it felt like on the sort of exploration of humanity and and that um, the series had engaged in up to this point, there is a lot of like, oh, look, it's like phasers, but they look more like guns because it's closer to the first energy weapon. And, you know, stuff looks, some of the technology looks kind of like stuff from the original series. And there's like, I don't know. There's a lot more like it felt like pandery type things to the existing Star Trek fan base. It felt like a, just a little bit like um, a product more than uh, exploration or character thing or whatever. It was just like I don't know. I get that. Trying I, I... to be cool. I don't know. Not that I think that like it's not. There's no value in the show. Like I don't think it's like. It's certainly not the worst show I've ever seen either, but like I definitely got that vibe from it. Yeah, I, I, I get that. I, I think the fact that it was on the air at the same time as Battlestar Galactic makes it, whoo boy, a tough time for it. But I enjoyed a lot of the aesthetic elements of Enterprise in that it felt more naval. Like, it uh, went even like the, um, the, uh, I can't remember what they call like the weapons officer on board is even like he's from naval like he's worked on like sea ships and now this is he's on a spaceship uh as a military officer and that's kind of a cool thing and there's like all these like ladders that they're sliding down and there's functional doors and I enjoy all of that but you're right it also was very pandery it was like constantly the gimmick was this is early star trek which did kind of run out and it ran out, you know, mid season. That's something you start to see them sliding away from and trying to go into these more mini series as, as they were, I think competing with Battlestar Galactica, they were trying to create more of a mini series around it. And you get these kind of long story arcs that are across like a season of episodes, uh, with like the Zindi, uh, invasion, I think it is. And then the, when they're in the expanse and things, the fluidic expanse and all of that. And they do, in the course of that, try to explore some things like xenophobia, uh, which I think is an overarching thing that Archer does have to deal with himself because, like, so early on, he has this 
in he has this problem with Vulcans because his father is like the guy who designed the engine that is in his ship. And Vulcans basically kept telling them, look, this won't work. You can't do this. You're terrible. You're humans. You're idiots. You shouldn't try to leave your own planet. And he's got this strong racist bias against Vulcans. And then that follows through with his attitudes about a lot of other species that he meets and just immediately first has some very strong uh, prejudice ideas about them. And he has to, pro he does, and I'll give the show credit for this, that he does, it, the show does make him confront those things, make him think about them, talk about them, and uh, he does process them and become a better individual by the end of the show. Uh, the show talks about xenophobia as an overall thing where there's like uh, terrorists on Earth who are like angry at the idea of aliens living on Earth and start doing terrorist attacks against aliens that I think was had some value to it. But I also very much think that a problem with Enterprise was that it really was a lot of manufactured consent for military actions at the time taken by the United, United States against Iraq. Um, so you get like a massive uh, attack by the Zindi that like blows, like blows up Florida. And then that causes us to have to invade the Zendi. I mean, it's not, yeah, a... <laughs> it's a very transparent metaphor. Yeah. Uh, like, <laughs> You know, and it, it is very much a, like everybody on the ship is like, oh, we have to remember I had family who was in Florida, so we have to invade the Zindi. And it was just a little too on the nose. And I, I think it's it, that's part of what has gives me a hard time giving it a rewatch. So I probably can't speak as clearly here as I should about the show. But it was very early 2000s American U.S. propaganda. Yeah. And also this is the um, how I put this. Enterprise is the um, beginning of another very obnoxious trope when it comes to Star Trek, which is the um, hot girl in a skin tight uniform thing, which um, began technically with Deanna Troy in The Next Generation, but then um, was kind of redone with Seven of Nine and now like in... Uh, to the Paul. Vulcan first officer to Paul, yeah, you mentioned uh, was very much continued and was played into extremely heavily, which is another reason that felt very like pandery and gross to me. I just like, even though I was like in 2001, I was in middle school, which is like right around the time for me, like that, you know, hot girl pandery uh, scenes were like, you know, should have been right up my alley just felt i remember like obnoxious i don't know like it, there was just like a sense to which it didn't feel genuine it felt like i don't know like and just... i think that's it's valid and i think you were more conscientious of it than i was i i mean i, I definitely... don't think i really even thought of it i think i just walked away with the impression of like i don't really like this and i don't know why but it's like not it doesn't feel like star trek to me I definitely, when it came out, I loved it. I was, you know, same age. And uh, we actually didn't have cable at my house. My mom, when my parents were split up, my mom had cable in her house. And I would constantly beg her to record it on DVR and put it on a VHS tape because it was 2003. 
Um, or every time I got to go visit my mom, it was like, oh my God, can I do it while start? Like, you know, can I get a Friday in there? So Star Trek is playing while I'm there. God, that was terrible to me as a kid. But, uh, and yeah, and I mean, a lot of what drew me into it as a 13, 12, 13 year old was it had way more space battles because it was the first one done in CG and they were, they just had the ability to do that. And then, yeah, it was scant, a lot of like skin tight uniforms that their mirror uh the, their mirror universe episode was ridiculously sexual and a way that like as an adult re- I, I, like a while back i went through a watch of all of the mirror universe episodes in every like thing because i love the mirror universe concept uh it was actually when i watched discovery and when discovery went into the mirror universe concept it's like okay i'm gonna watch the mirror universe episodes of every single uh star trek and Oh my God, the ones in Enterprise are like, even as a you know thirty year old man, I'm just like I am almost uncomfortable with how sexual this scene suddenly is. Uh, Enterprise went there in a way that wasn't like beneficial to the show, wasn't good writing. It was very ob- ob- objectifying. Um, yeah, it was like we want to show hot people. It is like the beach episode of every anime. It's just like. We want to draw slash show these characters in scantily clad attire. Here's our excuse to do it. Yup. So let's move on to a better era of Star Trek and finalize talking about Captain Chris Pine. Or not Chris Pine. God damn it, not Chris Pine. No, that's not the better era of Star Trek I'm talking, trying to talk about. Christopher Pike. Christopher Pike as the captain who was the captain before um uh captain kirk and we see him in discovery now the season he's actually in a discovery is a season of discovery i haven't watched but i've watched a bunch of things talking about him as a captain and how he plays into the kind of greater captainhood of star trek i'm curious have you seen the second season of discovery i haven't i tried to watch star trek discovery and i got all the same kind of vibes that i got from enterprise which is like it felt very pandery uh it felt like pandering in a different way it was more like hey we saw how you guys thought it was sucked that uh we didn't do any social justice things in the star trek enterprise let's now cram it down your throat with an iron pole like in a way that like felt also like the whole thing about star trek was like the social justice element of it was presented to you as a, a fact of the world that was not addressed like it like not not to say that like it wasn't important or that wasn't the point it was there but it wasn't like like uhura didn't walk in on her first episode and be like now announcing our great black woman communications officer uhura it was like here's our communications officer take for take that for what you will in the 60s you know, and like it was very much like Star Trek has always been very much like that. And I really it really irked me that there was like this very obvious like in your face, like like we're the oppressed minority overcoming, you know, the blah, blah. it's like it's not that I don't think that should be a part of it. I very much do. But like it didn't. It felt like they were trying a little bit too hard to like show off how super progressive they were in a way that like felt very like 
producty and like you know like very like much like uh oh sorry we forgot this was part of the star trek product now let's include it so that like all the liberals buy our uh, star trek discovery merchandise and not really like let's establish a, a a better world and show through example why that world is better um so no, I... anyway that's my mini discovery rant i won't get into it i it, I didn't like it very much personally. I tried to watch it. I couldn't get through the first season before I got too frustrated with it and quit watching. I have agreements and disagreements. Um, sure. I, I agree that I think there's a lot of rainbow capitalism happening in it. I mm. think, and I mean, which also fins into the primary reason why I'm not caught up with it. And also I'm not caught up with the card, which is coming around the corner um, is that I, it's, it's exclusive to the Paramount streaming service, and let's be honest, or it's CBS, I guess, but Paramount makes this. It's I think a CBS it's streaming moved service. to Paramount now. I think they've kind of like consolidated yeah. it into. But like, let's be blunt. What the fuck else is there on Paramount streaming service to watch? It's nothing. They're making you specifically pay five to ten dollars a month to watch Star Trek. It irks me. It if really you have children, me. there's a lot of like classic Nickelodeon and some like a, so. As someone with a Paramount Plus account. Uh, and I, I guess but, that's valid. That's valid. But uh, I just I, I've actually found some some really cool stuff to watch on there, but um that's a different thing entirely. But I'm not <laughs> yeah, I'm not a Paramount Plus defender either. Like but I, I, I mean have, point taken though. Yeah, Especially when it was just CBS All Access. That yeah. was very true at that moment. Yeah, I have an anger with like every single network trying to have their own streaming service because it breaks the entire purpose of streaming services and it it, it uh, yeah. But it was just it's just a way that like look when 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 uh cable first started the 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 dream was supposed to be there was going to be like all these specialized channels and you have to buy each of them individually but that ended up being too expensive and no one wanted to do it. So they had all these like bundles of channels that you could get uh and uh this is just another way for them to to do the uh channel thing and then just slowly do you know transfer it so that like you have to have 17 yeah. different subscriptions to different things to see all the shows you want to see. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that was, that is my beef with discovery is I get that all of that problem with it. It's just commercializing a thing. Um, that being said, I think that what I know of the second season of discovery, I am actually really excited to watch. It seems much better than the first season. The first season got much better in the second half of the season. Um, which par had partly to do with the change in writers, but it, it was much better in the second half of the season. And I think one of the best things that Discovery has done for Star Trek is flushed out a certain group of Star Trek fans that were toxifying the community. And I find as I venture through Star Trek communities today, I find immensely more diversity in the Star Trek fan community um, and immensely more... It's just a better space, I think, today. I think it has improved its fan community by being so aggressively uh, social justice-y. Um, so take with that what I will, what you will. I, I, I do agree with you. I think it was like trying to just hammer the nail with a sledgehammer in the beginning, um, but it did accomplish, I think, some good things for Star Trek. I think the that's good because that... it's always baffled me that Star Trek has become like this like weird fandom hub of like extremely toxic male white 
gate geeks because it's like were you guys paying attention to the same series i was like <laughs> hello <Yeah. laughs> like um yeah. but yeah uh, you know actually saying that gives me a, a reason to, to perhaps go give it a second chance because i think where i stopped is probably right around the time right maybe just before it started getting better uh and uh i think i was just i had become a little bit jaded with uh new star trek things and that like between the movies being rehashes of the original series and this feeling like a little ham-fisted and stuff i was just kind of feeling like uh this sort of jadedness of like i don't think anyone who understands what star trek really is about is you know doing it uh so maybe i maybe i should give it a i highly recommend it i had that all of those exact same reactions, especially with like, this isn't even about Star Trek. This is like a whole, one of the things that I was saying when I was watching the, when I was watching Discovery at first was that I felt like if Discovery was its own science fiction franchise, I would love it. But because it was trying to be Star Trek, it was bugging me uh, because it just didn't fit with Star Trek. But that changed like i had a friend who was like no you need to keep watching it you're gonna get there it gets better trust me and yeah and it, it, it they change writers i think it was and it like does a 180 in a way that is astounding um huh. and it does I, get I, much I, better I, this is a minor nitpick and i know I'm, I'm taking us a little bit too far off the topic here but um uh, it was something that I noted in Enterprise and became like because of the giant gap between uh, Star Trek Enterprise and Star Trek Discovery in time, it's like decades. Uh, the, or maybe not decades, plural, but like close to many, many years. Uh, we get that um, that weird effect that like Star Wars also struggles with a little bit, uh, particularly, which is like um, this weird thing of like, we're doing prequels. So we're going backwards in time where the technology is by all accounts worse, but all these special effects are so much better and futuristic looking that it's kind of like, I get that this is probably what it should look like. And that like all the other ones should look more futury, but it breaks me a little bit that it's like so much obviously cooler <laughs> uh, in yeah. the prequel with all the effects and shit than like the, than like, stuff that is chronologically in universe after <laughs> yeah uh, the prequel that it's like ah but like same same thing with star wars with like all the special effects from the prequels being way better than the originals trilogy and stuff um yeah yeah and i've Just been told weird... yeah what i've seen of the second season and what i've been told of the second season it improves but i still haven't got to my point and that is talking about captain pike um, yep. Sorry. <laughs> uh, and Captain Pike in the second season, and again, I'm taking this from a lot of YouTubers that I've followed talking about Captain Pike. Specifically, I'm pulling a lot from, um, oh, what is the name of this YouTuber that I was currently just watching a bunch of stuff from? And while I'm talking, I'm clicking YouTube so that I can bring up their name uh, and say it because it, it was so recent in my history that it's going to be right here. And that is jesse gender um and that talking about pike being this kind of emilio uh, well not emilio isn't the right word it kind of mixes several of the captains together we actually get a lot of positive things from archer which is this thing where like he doesn't dine in the captain's quarters like he doesn't dine like sip tea off by himself he 
goes and hangs out with the crew and dines with the crew and tries to get to know them very personally. He like makes a big deal about remembering the name of all of the bridge crew when he first meets them and starts coming up with these like little nicknames for the bridge crew. Um, he does a lot of collaborating with them every time there's like an issue and they're able to pull together and come up with ideas from everybody. He's able to like, he does a type of leadership that is um, allowing the crew to solve problems rather than him solving problems for the crew. And I think that's very good. I think from what I've seen, Captain Pike gives a much more modern and much more healthy depiction of leadership. Uh, and that is coming down from not somebody who is authoritarian, but coming down from somebody who is like trying to make a collaborative space and giving that just enough order for it to be able to flourish without running into some issues of like, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, you know, oppression of like, like having, when you have just a completely non-hierarchical space and that itself creates a certain amount of like authoritarian, like, you know what I'm trying to say better than I do. I, I, I'm bad at remembering the proper names for certain things like that, but you know, he really, he's a much more personable, more likable, he um, exhibits some of the same kind of uh, positive aspects as Kirk and uh, Archer, but he also has these aggressively moralistic and ethical views, kind of like Picard, where it's a, there is the good and right thing to do, and we are going to do the good and right thing, even if that costs us something, and that is a problem, but we're going to collaborate together and figure out how to do the good and right thing. And it, again, and this is a problem I had with the first season of Discovery. The first season of Discovery was very 2016. Uh, and by that, I mean, it was this moment where we all just had so much fucking angst about systems and people around us. And so it comes out as this thing where it's, you know, that everybody is actually a bad guy in the first season of Discovery. It's like, you know, you find out that the whole system of power is corrupt. Um, this, in a lot of ways wheels that back and says, no, let's look at a ship, at least, of people doing good, right things. Because one of the fundamental elements of Star Trek is that it is a utopia, that it is looking at positive uh, representations of characters. It's looking at positive role models. It's looking at like, it's, it's not about cautionary tales. It's not about watching Rick and Morty and figuring out that you're not supposed to be any of the characters in Rick and Morty. It's about watching something and being like, I want to see that person in myself. That is a unrealistically good person, good crew, and good society. I want to find out how to replicate that in reality as much as I realistically can. And I think it's kind of a return to that. And I think that's very good. And that was kind of why I definitely wanted to kind of end it on talking about that. Because I think that is something immensely valuable about Star Trek that is not seen in a lot of other modern fiction uh, franchises. Yeah, for sure. It's something that I've always enjoyed about the Star Trek universe as well, is that, um, you know, I think on the left in particular, we have a lot of like... <clears throat> 
arguments about what things should look like that I think like oftentimes kind of go off the rails of reality a little bit. Um, and um, as a result, also aren't very clear or graspable. I think one thing incredibly valuable about Star Trek is um, for a lot of a degree of campiness, especially in certain series, uh, and for, you know, certainly uh, dialing the levers in particular ways, you know, like the existence of a replicator, um, certainly uh, hand waves away a lot of like, you know, potential economic questions and concerns because it's like, oh, we can turn sand into food into diamonds and whatever like nothing's valuable when everything can be turned into everything else um although uh, except for dilithium crystals which for some for some sci-fi bullshit can't be replicated whatever like dilithium crystals being the thing that runs their engine that makes them go faster than light for non-trek people but like it's um you know hand waving that away a little bit uh like th there's this sense in which like um it's a little bit heavy-handed in the sense of like they basically just all but look at the camera and say like scarcity does not exist anymore let's look at society like um but um i think the benefit of that of uh is that you get to hand wave away some of the more complicated problems of utopia which is often like how do we deal with scarcity how do we deal with um you know xyz and look more at like let's just see what it's like to put you know pot try to try to create a positive view of the future and just let that be a thing like not are like star trek is not about arguing over whether or not by the 20 whatever century would we really be so egalitarian as to have you know the original series as bridge crew or would we really have you know these kind of characters or whatever the the entire point of it is to just to me you put the, the point of it being in the future was to 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 both have cool futury sci-fi crazy adventure time but also like to put enough distance between them and us that they could just put some things that we argue about now into a space where those problems are solved they're so solved that they don't think about them anymore like they don't think about race or nationality or religion or any of the stuff they don't care because these problems don't matter to them they're not present they there's we're in a future utopia where that kind of stuff like stopped dividing humanity a while ago and now we just get to look at like what that looks like and just let that sit and be like that to me is one of the biggest things I've always liked about Star Trek is this sense of which like it doesn't bother engaging with the argument about what you know like with with any of the arguments that we often have around like social justice issues it just goes far enough in the future to show you what it could look like well, in a I, really positive way. I sort of disagree. I mean, oh, I, interesting. I, 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 I mean, I do agree that it does do that. But at the same time, I think that it does still have those discussions. I mean, it, 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 it 
it takes those discussions and puts them in a different context so that we're able to process them without our own without having without having like without running into our hangups so like sure race doesn't matter to the bridge crew on the enterprise but they still talk about race through a context of an alien species that they've came across that like maybe is having a conflict of race and they have to act as a mediator or maybe it's looking at race through the perspective of it being different alien races and having yeah. racial issues with that and so Sorry. It's still yeah i didn't communicate that clearly that it like is something that i agree with as well is that like you know it it, it takes humanity when it does examine humanity's problems it does so from outside of humanity um and lets you explore that. Like, I, I, I think I mentioned this as being particularly valuable for, as a man with Klingons. Like, there was a, there's a sense in which, like, I always liked Worf stories and always felt them very compelling for some reason. Like, it was like, yeah, I get that. I get how you feel this tension. I kind of intuitively identified with him. And then, like, it was only much later that I was like, oh, shit, that was, like, toxic masculinity stuff they were talking about the whole time. Oh, right oh god it makes sense like and like it was a big moment of revelation for me um uh so yeah i i, I agree with you I, I think like i didn't communicate that very clearly yeah oh no no that's fine and, and i you know and i also agree with you i think while doing that it's 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 managing to in the same episode tell us how to potentially process and solve an issue while also showing us how that how the world can look once that issue is solved and i think that's brilliant that's awesome right and i think the biggest value of the the presenting it as solved framing is specifically that like it doesn't seem weird like that's the kind of beauty of it like when you watch like when people watch the original series like yeah there was some like holy crap like they got a russian guy and a black woman and all the stuff on the bridge crew like blah like the commentary was all there but like in the show, like people who just watched it were like, yeah, these are the characters. This is what they're doing. And like it didn't no no one like was like, oh, like people aren't going to do their jobs well or like there was none of that anxiety stuff. It was just like. It was fine. Those things didn't matter. In the show. And, uh, you know. So I don't know that 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 to me is kind of like yeah is like kind of gives you this this view of a thing to strive for of like a place where you know getting to a place where these things don't matter as much where we don't concern ourselves so deeply about the not 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 in the context of like ignoring the current oppressive elements which we definitely should not do. Um, and we should recognize when, you know, axes of oppression, like, you know, race and gender and all that stuff uh, happen. But like, to be able to at least sit and know through some media examples that like, you know, if, if we do manage to get this stuff sorted out, we do manage to get it to a place like, it's not going to be weird. It's not going to be awful. It's not going to like create a bunch of problems. It'll look something like this. And this show's cool. <laughs> like, it's a nice place to be. A hundred percent. Yeah, that's what I like about Star Trek. That's what I like about all of the captains. In one way or another, there's a representation of this in that. Um, 
And this kind of wraps up everything I have to talk about with the Starfleet captains. Yeah, uh, sorry we didn't stick with the flavor of five-hour mission. It's actually just to <laughs> Yeah, no. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, what can we do? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I was about to say they didn't stick to a five-year mission plan, but... what? Um, fair enough. <laughs> uh, I mean, to be fair, there's a lot of, like, I mean this and a lot of other media we could go endlessly on but like star trek has a lot of interesting uh characters to explore masculinity on like obviously there's klingons we could go on a whole thing about Worf, very clearly on theme but like i mean the the you sort of offhandedly mentioned people like the doctor on voyager um or um one that wasn't mentioned was like the genetically engineered doctor on deep space nine uh, which is a whole interesting kind of bundle of like the thing around genetic engineering being like creating the ideal human. And it's like, but it's banned. And the reason it's banned is because creating the ideal human is a problem for is a thing fraught with a lot of problematic stuff that they chose to do in that universe by banning. Anyway, I don't want to get into the whole discussion, but like there's a lot of really interesting uh, things to talk about, about, you know, masculinity and identity and all that stuff around a lot of characters in Star Trek. We chose to focus on the captains, but we pr- could very easily have had a five-hour, you know, series, five-episode series on various male characters in Star Trek. And I and I I'm sure we're going to return to a lot of this. We're going to I you know in the future we want to talk about a lot of other fictional characters as well. Um, if there is a fictional universe franchise character um, organization or otherwise entity that you would like us to talk about feel free to dm us on twitter on facebook or uh anywhere else of which where you might know us um you know send us a uh subspace message if you need to um <laughs> preferably encode it i you know i'm I, I really don't need um yeah i don't need people knowing where i am i'm trying to hide out in some maquis base um <laughs> yeah if you want to send a sub if you want to send a subspace message you're, i'm gonna i don't have my subspace array working i'm gonna need to uh uh polarize the deflector array <laughs> and uh get it working for the love of god don't use your holodecks those have been defective <laughs> since forever i don't know why the fuck y'all keep using holodecks i do not need more shakespearean characters charging into my bedroom in the middle of the night <laughs> yeah metaverse is just mark zuckerberg uh <laughs> trying to make holodecks a real thing despite <laughs> all the warnings of <laughs> star trek on why that's a very bad idea um why is safety off even a setting <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah um i've definitely never been on the internet and like i want whatever i google to be able to kill me no that's not gonna happen <laughs> um well uh do you have anything else uh you would like to add uh this week before we sign off uh no i think that's gonna be it for me i uh really enjoyed the conversation around star trek captains uh it's one of my favorite franchises uh, i yeah and i'm looking forward to seeing what people have to say about our uh both both our specific comments about you know the captain's relation to masculinity and our uh inevitable takes on various Star Trek series that come with that uh 
all the I'm sure all the enterprise uh, fans will at me and talk about how I just don't get it or something. But um, <laughs> yeah. Oh well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, wherever you are, whatever time of day it is, be kind to yourself and make it so.